Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherl Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 44 years of industry experience. With me again in the studio today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 38-year veteran in the automotive industry. Hey, Rob. Great to be with you again. Good to have you back, Brian. And Bill Sherl, a guy who's been driving a long time, always brings up some great questions for conversation. Hello, Bill. Hello, Rob. Glad to be here. Great to have you back. Today we're talking about jump-starting your car, and it seems to be the right time of the year to be talking about this subject because, yes, it will happen. So picture this. It's 11 p.m. You're done with work. Finally, you walk to your car in the parking lot, open the door, and something just doesn't feel right. Wait, there's no interior lights. You get in, put the key in, you're afraid what's happening next, you turn the key in, oh no. Now what? What goes through your mind? Who do you call? Do you have loved ones at home? But how will they help you? Well, there are many ways to handle this scenario. You can call a tow truck. It is 11 p.m., probably after hours charges. AAA is a possibility. AAA is a possibility. They typically call that tow truck for you. You can lock it up, get a ride home, and worry about it the next day. That's procrastination. Or you can jumpstart it. With the help of a friend. With the help of a friend. You need a donor for this one. Absolutely. So jump start. What the heck does that mean? What does jump mean? Another term for boost. Okay, so what does boost mean? I assume that boost means that I'm going to get power back to my battery in order to get the engine started. Absolutely. Most likely, the scenario I just ran through means that you have a dead battery. So the battery's lost its charge for whatever reason, and there's multiple reasons why this can happen. But yes, Bill, you're right. You've got to get a charge back in that battery. You've got to wake that battery up so it can do its job and start your car. Now, how many times can I necessarily recharge a battery before it's just dead dead? You really shouldn't have to recharge it. There's a reason that the battery went dead. We bumped the interior light switch when we got out of the car, left an accessory on of some kind. So as far as recharging the battery, we should find out why it happened so it doesn't happen again. But technically, you can recharge them all the time, significant amount of times. Because when does it, I mean, not to like take this in a different direction, but because at one point you need a new battery. When it just won't charge anymore. Correct. When it won't hold the charge, you have to replace it. That's typical when a battery is about five years old. So you should get a lot of service out of your existing battery. So one thing we need to remember, anytime that we are in an unplanned scenario like the story I just went through, we've got to go into safety mode. That's always the most important thing. You've got to leave that scenario, that situation with your car aside just for a moment and put your mind in a safety mode. Are your surroundings, you know, know your surroundings. Are you safe? Are you the only one in that parking lot? How far out in the parking lot are you? Are there lights around? Things like that. Your cell phone is definitely your lifeline. In this day and age, just about everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. Make sure it's charged at all times for situations like this. Back in the day, we didn't have cell phones with us, and you're looking for a pay phone, or you're going back into the store that just closed the doors, or whatever the case may be. Obviously, the best place to have this happen would be in your driveway. So going to work, you're going to be in the safest scenario that you could be in. Then you can make different kind of plans. A charged flashlight always comes in handy. When you are 
again, in this story that I ran through, the only one in the parking lot, flashlights are always good. So make sure that you have a charged flashlight or use a cell phone flashlight mode. From a safety standpoint, one thing a lot of people don't realize is a discharge battery gives off a flammable gas called hydrogen sulfide. And when you're jump starting, you want to make sure that you don't have a spark that would ignite that gas. That happened to you once, Robert. That did happen to me. And I'm going to get into that story a little bit later on in our podcast here. But yeah, that's when you're actually in the process of jump starting your vehicle, there's a lot of things to consider that would be categorized under the safety part of it. So we'll get more into that. Not trying to scare anybody, but things that you need to know. So what's next? Okay, you're safe, you feel secure, you still come back to the car that's a dead battery. What are the signs that a jump start is what they need? Because I, Brian, many times when a car doesn't start, it's not necessarily the battery. So what are the signs that it might just need a jump start to get going again? Like you spoke about earlier, no interior lights. You turn on the key and you get nothing from the starter, which is possibly the battery needs jumping. But if you don't have any dash lights, turn your headlights on. Leave your headlights on and try starting your car. See if the headlights dim. And if they do, that means that the starter is getting some voltage to try and work. So it could be a starter issue at that point. So the telltale signs, no radio, no headlights, no dash lights. Those would be the indication that you might need to jumpstart your car. So if the uh, power accessories do come on, and the car still doesn't start, most likely it's not a battery issue. Probably something else, yes. Okay. Well, the next step that you would want to do is want to start thinking about, okay, who can help you with this? You will obviously need a good battery or another vehicle or a jumper pack that you probably don't have with you. So you've got to phone a friend for the most part or a family member or somebody else that's in the parking lot. Possibly be careful who you're talking to. Again, safety first. So... I've done all that. Now what is next and actually the process to jumpstart the vehicle? My friend has now arrived on with their donor vehicle. I like the fact of donor vehicle. That's just a great term. I like that too, yeah. <laughs> it's like the pallets for the CPR donor. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a set of jumper cables in your vehicle, Bill? I do, actually. Okay. we got to get those out. Okay. And if you don't happen to have them, hopefully your friend brought them with. Or they have gone to the store to buy them on the way to coming and helping me. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. And if you're going to go buy a pair of jumper cables to keep in your car, buy the longest ones you can find. Because there's a lot of times that you can't actually get to the front of the car because you're in a parking lot and there's cars all the way around you. So you're going to have to reach all the way around to the front of the car. Yeah, the research that I did, they recommended a 20-foot set of jumper cables. Those would be great. Those would be awesome. So do jumper cables ever go out of date? Like if I haven't ever used mine and they've nope. been there for several years? It's possible that there's some corrosion, but okay. protect it in your trunk. For the most part, no. Okay, that's good to know. It's interesting you say that to have a pair of jumper cables with you in your trunk, in your emergency kit at all times, because in the scenario that we're talking about here today, if you did not have those cables, you not only have to find a donor vehicle, but you have to find one or a person that has the cables. If you have the cables, all you really need to do is find a person with a good battery in a car. Much easier to find. Okay, you're ready to make this happen. So what types of items do we need, Brian, to 
get this going, get this jump start happening? Well, you have to locate where the battery is, and there's a lot of times you can't even see it. You may want to refer back to your owner's manual if you can't see where the battery is on your car because there's access points under the hood to hook up the positive cable and the negative cable. So you got to open the hood on both vehicles to be able to access there. And safety glasses would be a great idea if you happen to have them. Just in case something goes bad, you got to protect those eyes. Gloves, again, if you got them, that would be a good thing to have on. Make sure you have good lighting, flashlight. What kind of gloves? Rubber gloves would be oh, best okay. to protect yourself possibly from Electri- the acid. Oh, yeah. not electrocution. No. 12-volt battery isn't going to cause an electrocution. If there's a high rate of discharge, it gets very hot, but the risk of death is very low. That's good to know. A flashlight would be good if it's dark out, 11 o'clock at night, like yeah, you're talking absolutely. about, yeah. to be able to make sure that you find the proper connections and are able to hook it up without possibly hooking the positive side or the red cable and bumping the ground and causing a spark and a discharge. So there's some things to watch out for. Now, that spark that you just talked about that you mentioned earlier, which I actually have never heard of the gas situation. So what makes that so dangerous is the ignition of the gas. Yep. It's a highly flammable gas. Wow. Hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen. Right. Highly flammable. Like the Hindenburg. Yep. Okay. And the, actually, the story that Brian was referring to earlier of my own, when I was a um, teenager, was attempting to jumpstart my vehicle with another donor vehicle. And the other vehicle was the last connection I made. And when I made that connection, it actually sparked, and the top of the battery blew off. Anyway, the top of the battery blew off. The top so, of the battery, it actually exploded. Okay, so the little bit that, so battery acid goes everywhere? Battery acid went everywhere. I lost my glasses, never found them. Who knows where they went? And it set me right down on my rear. I learned a big lesson that day. Wow. Yeah. Not to scare everybody, so that doesn't <laughs> happen very often. Yeah, it's the only time I've For heard those of, it. of you that don't know, Rob is a little bit up there in age and <laughs> the batteries were vented differently back then. Absolutely. So. Things are different. They're sealed today, is that right, Brian? They're sealed much better today than they used to be, but it's still something to be aware of. Now the process of actually jump starting your vehicle or a vehicle can actually be found in your owner's manual. Bill, you said you've seen that there yourself. Yes, several um, vehicles ago I had to go back and read that just because it was a newer vehicle and I'm like, okay, the battery's there, but knew that there were other contact points to use and where do you ground it because not everything is metal anymore <laughs> and how do you necessarily ground it? And I got it out of my owner's manual. It's interesting where you can find batteries on the newer cars. Traditionally is under the hood, typically under a plastic cover to make it look pretty. So you got to find out where that's at. But there are batteries behind the front tire in the fender. There's batteries under the back seat. There's a few in the trunk. One I know of is in an access panel behind the driver's side rear tire. So what do you do in those situations? There is an access point under the hood. That's marked, identified, that you can actually hook up the cables to that or a battery charger if you're in the service department. So you're saying that there's always going to be an access point under the hood regardless of where the battery's located? Yes. Okay, good to know. I know oftentimes when you open a hood, like you said, there's a black cover over it. 
it's not always obvious where that battery is. So you've got to do a little bit of research and maybe know ahead of time, possibly. Most of the time you can't even see it. That'd be another good reason to look at your owner's manual. I would imagine the owner's manual for that particular year make and model is going to tell you where the battery is located. Or where the access points to actually service, jumpstart the car. When the next time you're filling your windshield wiper fluid, look to see if you can actually see your battery. And if you can't, then refer to your owner's manual. Perfect. Yeah, it's best to know ahead of time. <laughs> exactly, before the problem. When it's dark at 11 o'clock yeah. at night, yeah. it's pretty dark under the hood. Yeah. Absolutely. We touched briefly also before on the jumper cables themselves. I did some research on this, and I've actually we have a link at allaboutthecarpodcast.com, so make sure you check that out. But it's recommended that, at a minimum, you purchase a four- to six-gauge set of jumper cables to leave in your trunk. Obviously, we talked about that. I mean, they recommend a 20-foot cable. They come a lot shorter than that. They come a lot lesser or lighter duty, but four to six gauge would be a good quality pair. Typically, you don't have to spend too much for those. What does four to six gauge mean? Four gauge or six gauge? Yeah. It's the diameter. It's the, the diameter wire. of the wire. Yeah. And I've seen some pretty cheap ones out there Yeah, <laughs> that really don't work. I will be checking out the gauge of my jumper cables. Check your gauge, Bill. Yep. It's not unusual to have those cables get very hot when you're jump starting a vehicle. You can actually feel the heat coming off the cable. And if they're too small, you could actually start them on fire. Well, before we talk about how to get your car going again, let's talk about if you have an operating car, where can you go in Wisconsin for our road trip? Oh, once you have those jumper cables in your trunk, you're ready to go. Exactly. You've got your emergency I'm kit. It's wintertime, right? So yeah. we've got to be ready for just about anything that Wisconsin can throw at us. We're going to take a side trip, a road trip to a destination in Wisconsin. Bill, how about the ice castles at Lake Geneva? I have never been there. I've heard about them, and I've seen pictures online a couple winters ago along Lake Geneva, but I've actually never gone down there. Brian, have you been there? I have not seen that. Nope. Actually, since I've researched this and looked into it a little bit more, I've made plans to go there. So that happens in January. The Ice Castles are actually an award-winning frozen attraction located in four cities across North America, and we're lucky enough in Wisconsin to have one of those four right here in Lake Geneva. The whole experience is built using hundreds of thousands of icicles and hand-placed professional ice artists are in there doing the work. The castles include LED-lit sculptures, frozen thrones, ice-carved tunnels, slides, fountains, and a lot more. That's amazing that they're saying that they're made out of icicles versus, I think, of ice blocks. So that would be well worth going to see what they mean by made out of icicles. Absolutely. And all the LED lighting, this is a thing. I think we're going to take our grandkids to it. It's going to be a great getaway, just a weekend thing. And a perfect outdoor event. So, and I believe that you had said that there was a lot of COVID guidelines and practices that they're going to be taking into place. And I think it's at the Geneva National Resort and Club, correct? I believe so. Absolutely. They have stated that one thing that coronavirus won't ruin this winter is the return of the evocative and popular ice castles, which are slated to be back at the Lake Geneva Resort early 21. Because that's also part of the Downtown Lake Geneva Festival or whatever in February. So if this piques your interest in January, check out on the website 
uh, the Geneva destinations and things like that for other things that may be going on in the area. So a lot of things happening down there. All the more reason to uh, make it a plan for a trip. Sounds like that happens between January 20th and February 17th, weather permitting. Right. Hopefully we'll have a cold enough weather for all of our things that we like to do in the winter for activities to get outside this winter. Because it would be bad if we had a rainy, warm winter. be very sad. Sounds like a road trip to me. Yep. Okay, we're back to reality. Back to the nitty-gritty. We're ready to jumpstart this vehicle. And as Brian mentioned earlier, we've got to locate the battery in both your car, or the dead car, may not be yours, you might be just a good Samaritan in this case, and the donor car. And Brian also mentioned that sometimes there isn't an opportunity to get the car close enough. If you can, you want to make sure that you align both cars so the cables reach. And of course, you're going to have that 20-foot cable that's going to allow you that flexibility. Now you're ready to jumpstart your car we got to hook up the cables in the proper order. We want to minimize that possibility of spark by the dead battery. So what you do is, my personal habit of doing it is I take one end of the cables and I hook the black connector to the actual cable itself so that the black and the red connector can't touch while I'm hooking up the other end. So when I'm hooking up the car with the dead battery, I hook up the positive connection and then the negative connection. So then I go to the other end to the donor car and where I hooked up the cable earlier so that it doesn't spark or inadvertently come together while I'm moving the cables around, I unhook that. I then hook up the positive cable to the donor car and then I hook the negative cable up to a metal component away from the battery if at all possible. If you have to, you can hook it up to the negative post of the battery. That way, if there is a spark, it would be away from the battery and minimize safety issue. So what I'm hearing, Brian, is you hook up the dead car first. Correct. And both white or red and black on the dead car. Is that yes, correct? correct. Now, are they always red and black? Yes, always red and black. Well... If somebody's had some repair work done, it is possible that the red one could have been changed over to a different color to a black. So at that point, you would look at the battery, and the batteries are identified with a plus and a minus sign on the battery itself, and the positive or the plus sign is always the red, and the negative or the black is the negative side of the battery. So you mentioned earlier that when you're doing the final hookup on the donor car, you may not always attach it to the battery, but you might pick a remote spot. Can you explain that a little bit further? Sure. If you have access to metal on the car, on the engine, it's best to hook it up away onto that piece of metal because then the spark is away from the battery. It helps minimize the possibility of an explosion. You can't always find metal parts on the cars anymore because we have so much plastic around them to help airflow and to make them look pretty. But if at all possible, try to find a piece of metal to hook on. And is that what people refer to as grounding? That is grounding, correct. That makes sense. We also have a link at allaboutthecarpodcast.com that explains this in detail. So make sure you visit that. And that gets into a lot more detail in regards to how to hook up your car. And at that point, you should turn off any accessories for sure on the donor car. Turn off your headlights if at all possible. You want to get as much 
voltage and amperage through the cables as possible. So you don't want to be robbing any of that power to run the headlights and such. You can turn your headlights on from the donor car after the jumper bit cables have been hooked up for a little while just to make sure you can help see what you're doing. So that's a really good question that you just brought up. Like as you are going through which cables to hook up where, is the donor car running during this time or is it turned off? I typically have the donor car running. Okay. I use the that's headlights. That's a good question. The additional lighting to help identify that we're doing it correctly. So from the way I see it here in our conversation, we're ready to go. You've got everything hooked. We've got it hooked up correctly. The donor car is also running, which is telling me that if everything's done correctly, it's already putting a charge into the dead vehicle, the bad battery. Yeah. When you hook up the negative end to your final connection, most of the time you can actually hear the donor car work a little bit harder. You can actually hear a change in how the vehicle is running. And that's making the alternator on your vehicle put out more energy to get through to the dead car. So then how long do I have to wait with the dead car before I try and start it? I'd wait a couple minutes to start with. If you start seeing the dash lights come on when you're turning the key on, that's a good indication that you got a good connection and that the power's flowing between the vehicles. A lot of times when you first try it, you'll hear some clicking or the lights will go dim. And at that point, just stop. If you try to continue, it's just going to take all the power that you just put into it. 20 minutes to a half hour would not be uncommon if that battery is truly dead. Because the donor car is using gasoline to produce this energy to charge its own battery, there's not a fear of running out of power being produced by the donor. You're not going to wear the donor battery down. Is that true? Correct. Yep. The alternator on the donor vehicle will continue to charge the battery in the donor vehicle. So that's not going to damage anything. So no fear of uh, any damage to that donor vehicle at this point. The only thing that we haven't talked about is if you're in an enclosed space, say the vehicle's in a garage and you're trying to reach up in there, the possibility of carbon monoxide So you want to make sure you have plenty of ventilation. If you're out in the big parking lot, that's not going to happen. Now, I've also seen people jump starting a car, myself as well, where I increase the RPM of the donor vehicle. Does that help? It does. It's spinning the alternator faster, which then it can generate more power. Keep the voltage up where it's supposed to be and have more amperage, more current flow. So that just means like pushing out the gas pedal and revving the engine, correct? A, right, exactly. A little bit. <laughs> like up RPM. RPM like. <laughs> you don't want to go too far if you have a tachometer on the vehicle. I'd say about 1,500 RPM. It doesn't take much because you don't want to over-rev and create additional strain on the donor vehicle's engine. It could speed the process, though. It'll help move the current to the dead battery faster. So then miraculously, the dead vehicle, I eventually turn the key and it starts. Now what do you do? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's your question. that's great. Don't shut it off. (laughs) Okay, exactly. (laughs) So you'll disconnect the battery in reverse. You'll take the negative off the donor vehicle off first, take the positive off the donor vehicle, and then take the jump start car's connections off. And obviously, you're not going to be, want to touch any of those cables together, just nope. like you did when you were putting them on. Yeah, but it's easy enough to have the loose end flanging around and sparking. So just do it in the exact opposite 
sequence that you did when you set it up and hopefully with everything going correctly at this point that the dead vehicle is still running and you haven't done any damage to the donor car. Right. That would That's be awesome. a great scenario. You're going to want to have it running for a half hour, 45 minutes to get that vehicle charge back up. Depending on the age of the battery, you may want to take it in and have the battery tested just to see if if we inadvertently left something on that may have put the final nail in the coffin, so, so to speak, for the battery. And that's probably something as a driver you could do too. As soon as it gets started, double check, like you mentioned earlier, make sure that you didn't leave an interior light on or your headlights on or something on that drew that battery down while you were at work. In recharging that battery for the 15 minutes to a half hour or whatever, does it make a difference if whether I drive it or if it just sits idle? Driving it would be better because you are allowing the alternator to put more current, more amperage to charge that battery up faster. That's why I always think of it as like driving the vehicle is really the process of charging the battery It will as well. help significantly, yeah. Comes back to that RPM. Yeah. <laughs> Get high RPMs. <laughs> yes. Not high. Oh, high okay. RPM is bad. Okay. Checking the doors to make sure one of them isn't partially open. Is the trunk completely closed? Did we inadvertently leave the glove box open? It says that light on. The interior lights, it's easy enough to bump the switch with your knee as you're getting out of the car. Those are some of the things that typically we find that cause the problem. Now, if all of these checks are checking okay, the ones that you do yourself, probably best to schedule an appointment with your service center to find out what may have happened there, whether it's just a, an old battery that needs to be replaced or is there something else in the system that's drawing. If it's definitely continuing, if you've got to jump it a few times, there's something draining the battery. If it's a one-shot deal that we left something on, the service center probably can't find anything because there's nothing there. But they can fully charge the battery and test it to make sure that the battery itself is not giving you any issues. Some questions that had come up from uh, folks that I had talked to, and I'd like to run some of these by you, Brian and Bill. Pipe in if you'd like. One question was, do car batteries freeze? And I think what they meant is like water freezes. Does the fluid inside a battery freeze? If so, can it still be jumped? It shouldn't freeze. With our maintenance-free batteries, we don't add water to them anymore. There is the outside possibility that it could freeze. If that happens, absolutely do not jumpstart it. You're probably not going to know it if it's frozen. Some telltale signs might be white frost on the outside of the battery, but most of the time we can't see them anymore. So... In answer to your question, no, if it's frozen, you cannot jumpstart it. I can't remember the last time I experienced a frozen battery, but back in the day, it seemed to happen more often They, where they would freeze. Because we were adding water. As the battery charged back in the old days, <laughs> back when we first started, <laughs> we'd add water as part of our routine maintenance. When we do the oil change, the water in the battery would actually boil off, and we'd have to add water. But gosh, since the 80s, They've been maintenance-free, and most of them are sealed that you can't even do anything to anymore. Are there any precautions that a driver, car owner, if you will, can take so this scenario doesn't happen to them? Replace the battery before it gives you any issues. Summer heat is actually what destroys a battery, but most of the time it doesn't show up until the winter when we need that extra reserve capacity in the battery, and it's just not there. My recommendation is just change your battery every five years. I've seen them 10, 11, 12 years old, so 
You're kind of on borrowed time at that point. It can be. Most of the time it's six, seven years old when they start to fail. So that would be a preemptive thing you can do to minimize the possibility of a having to jump start it. So really this comes back to a previous podcast that we had in regards to preventative maintenance. So it's one of those items that we keep in our mind or keep in our records to know when to change that battery, much like changing the battery in your smoke detector in your house. We don't have to change those twice a year though. <laughs> no, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> and now for a new feature that we've added into our podcast, we're going to do this every time that we get together and talk. Top questions that we get at our service counter. So we'd like to dispel some myths, get into some conversations, and answer some questions that are frequently asked. The first one that we're going to run through is going to be, can I change the size of my tires? Pretty broad question. A lot of reasons why we would do this. Brian, what are your thoughts? In answer to your question, yes, but it depends on what you're trying to do. This time of the year, in the winter or leading into the winter, a lot of people are going with winter tires or the old terminology, snow tires. And there's many times that you have to actually change the size of those tires. But there's some parameters that would be involved in that. With the modern cars, the wheel speed or the, the speedometer is directly tied to fuel management, to transmission shifting, to anti-lock brakes many different things like that. So if you are actually changing tire sizes, in that case, we need to keep the overall circumference the same. There's other scenarios that we can talk about later in future podcasts about making tires bigger for your trucks to increase ground clearance and things like that. I see that quite a bit out there on the road, so that would be a good podcast for later. In central Wisconsin, we got a lot of jacked up trucks. We do. So in Talking about winter tires, though, I'm glad I said winter versus snow. So on winter tires, it's not something that I want a bigger tire because I think like I want more traction or if there's my vehicle has a tire that, well, my first priority is good traction year round. And if my vehicle does not have a size that provides a really strong all-season tire, that's when I may have to have that option to go to a winter tire. Am I getting that correct? Yep, you are correct. There is a lot of variations of all-season tires. To get the designation of all-season is a pretty loose terminology. It has to meet certain requirements to get that designation. Within the all-season family of tires, you can get ones that deliver really good winter traction, without having to go through the hassle of changing the tires on and off twice a year. There's certain cars out there just because of the size of the tire that the manufacturers design for the car that there is not a winter or a snow tire made for that particular car, so then you start changing sizes. And when you do that for winter tires, you typically go with a narrower tire, a smaller cross-section And what that does for you is it increases the weight per square inch on your contact patch, the part of the tire that's hitting the ground, to deliver better traction. That is so counterintuitive because you would think, I want big tires, all this traction, and not a small patch. But once you described it, that makes sense. I want traction, not just grip or whatever the term may be. You want a skinny tire on the road. You want to cut through the snow and not ride on top of it, basically. Got it. And that's totally different than if I'm driving on 
sandy roads or out in the fields right yep you definitely want a wider tire with more flotation to stay on top of it at that point so okay. that'll get into the trucks when we start right. talking about interesting that interesting concept of like that slicing through the snow with weight on as small an area of the tire as possible the winter tire they typically have a lot of what's called siping in it or little cuts so there's all these different biting edges on there and the compounding of the tire is designed to stay very, very flexible under freezing, under 32 degrees. And the disadvantage to them is you got to take them on and off spring and fall. If you leave them on through the summer, the odds are you won't have tires left uh, for you, the winter. You, you just answered my next question. Like, say I'm lazy. Why can't I just drive on these all year round? You can. You just have to change them every year. <laughs> Not a good investment then, I bet. Um, and the misconception on a snow tire, which are, is what they're typically called, it's more of a winter tire. So when the roads get frosty, a little greasy, they stay pliable, flexible, so that you have traction on these roads, even though they're not snow covered. That's one of the big advantages to a winter tire. You are not going to get a better traction tire than actually in the winter than an actual winter tire. But there's the downside of switching them out. So there's a lot of great all-season radials. Most cars, you can go to that. But coming back to that frequent question from the counter, can I change the size of my tower? Yes, you can. We'll talk about getting bigger or smaller. But when it comes to winter tires, for the most part, you're not going to necessarily change the size because the circumference is going to stay the same. Most of the time, you can get the correct size for your car in a winter tire. There are actually getting to be more and more cars that have unique sizes where you're actually going to have to buy a different set of rims or go with a different size tire, but we have to keep the overall circumference, the overall diameter the same so that we don't create new problems like the car doesn't shift right, the fuel economy changes and things like that. So that might be something if you're really interested in want to have traction before I buy a car to check or at least ask somebody the question about, does this provide a winter tire option? Knowing what size tire on there and asking the questions to get educated about the car you may right. be buying is ultra important. Yeah, and that may not be the car salesperson may not know that information where you may have to reach out to a tire specialist or somebody who knows about tires. Yes, We've talked about it in past podcasts where you have an all-wheel drive vehicle and one of the tires gets ruined and now you have to buy four new tires. That is not a pleasant conversation for the tire consultant or the owner of the vehicle. So there's a lot of variables. It's a good idea to know what you're doing. So now you've just brought up another question in my head of like, if that's the case and I want traction, can I put two winter tires on my car or do I have to put all four? It is not recommended to do two tires only. We used to do it all the time back when it was rear wheel drive. Well, the best traction tires we put on the back. If it's a front wheel drive, which most cars are nowadays, if you put the best tires on the front, you're going to end up in a situation called the understeer and all of a sudden the back of the car is going to come around and you're going to be pointing the other direction. And that actually happened to me once. It is scary. A big old Buick Riviera, and I'm going the other direction, and I didn't even know what happened. Wow. 
So it's best. The front end sticks better, yep. which allows the back end to break Spin loose. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So in answer to your question, yes, four tires. There's a lot more information here than I thought we would bring <laughs> out. Simple, frequently asked question is. To me, it almost sounds like we've got to consult our tire specialist when it comes to this. It's a lot to remember, right. for sure. So in the, my answer to the question was yes, yes but. but. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so do your research. You know, we've covered a lot of winter-type information here in this podcast. We went into this being safe and the scenario that you break down or your battery doesn't start and what to do next, the type of items that you will need to have in your trunk to jumpstart your car. We took a side trip to Lake Geneva to see the ice sculptures, which I got in my plans to do this year. And then we talked about the actual procedure on how to jumpstart your vehicle, get back on the road again, and we answered some very important questions that have been brought up by our listeners. And we introduced a new feature about bringing up the top questions that are asked at our service counter. And we really got in-depth in that, a lot of good information there. So right along with us next time, when we talk about driving safe and smart in our Wisconsin winters, where it's all about the car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. See you next time.